I've thought a lot over the last few years of how we can be responsible technology makers and make things that make us more human. Welcome to the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. In this episode, I interview Chris Beasley. She's a product manager, startup founder, and she runs a podcast and is also a writer. In this episode, we discuss what it takes to create technology that interfaces well with humanity. And we talk about some of the pitfalls and some of the problems with the current technology that we have today and where we can go in the future and how we can build technology that better fits and suits humanity moving forward. This is an amazing episode, so please stay tuned. Greetings, Hacker. Ever wonder how to submit stories to Hacker Noon or check the status of your submissions? Well, wonder no more. Go to contribute.hackernoon.com. Whether you're a new writer, longtime contributor, or looking for the right place to spotlight your brand, get started with contribute.hackernoon.com. With your help, we are building Hacker Noon 2.0 to be the best place for tech professionals to publish, and it starts with a new submission flow. Head over to contribute.hackernoon.com today to claim your spot. You are Hacker Noon. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Chris. Tell us a bit about who you are and what you're working on. Hey, good to be here. Um, I am working on a podcast also called Embodied Reality, which is about technology, creativity, and love. Uh, and I am also spinning up a lab to bring together artists and technologists to create um, performance pieces that stretch consciousness and alter consciousness. Awesome. And I met you at, uh, I got to get this one right because I keep wanting to call it the wrong thing. It's Dev Stories. Uh, it was an event that uh, Hacker Noon hosted at uh, GitHub's headquarters. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your talk and uh, what you were uh, getting into there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I started off by talking about the origin of the species. <laughs> Here we are at Dev Stories at GitHub, and I'm like, let's go back in time to before Homo sapiens, all the way to Homo erectus, uh, because it wasn't Homo sapiens that discovered fire, actually, it was Homo erectus, and fire made us human. And I love this, and I relate this to standing in GitHub because. Uh, I'm fundamentally an optimist about technology. Uh, technology made us human. We mm. weren't human without technology. Had we not had fire to cook food, we wouldn't have evolved these larger brains, which only can exist uh, with access to greater nutrition. So I, I am fundamentally a technologist. <laughs> um, and that gives me great hope. Um, so then I went into um, an understanding of this idea of where addiction is coming from, because there's a lot of people, including me, that are concerned about the addictive potential of technology. Um, and I spent a whole lot of 2017 really researching virtual reality and augmented reality, and now I'm building 
um, things in the lab that use biosensors and really like moving far beyond just the shiny rectangles that we look with our visual system, but bringing these things far closer to the body, sometimes literally on the skin and taking over your whole visual field and your whole acoustical field. Um, that means the potential for addiction is even greater. So I've thought a lot over the last few years of how we can be responsible technology makers and make things that make us more human. And I believe that we absolutely can uh, transcend where we are in our current humanity as long as we're building things that have that intent. Mm -hmm. So then the question becomes, how can you tell? How can you tell whether you're building something that's helping or hurting? Um, and I think about it from the framework of the addiction pathways, the reward pathways in the brain, um, which if you understand the reward pathways, you also understand happiness. Like addiction and happiness use exactly the same reward pathways. Um, and there are four. Uh, to, it's always more complicated than this, but for today's purposes, we'll talk about dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, um, and uh, endorphins. So endorphins are what you get when you're riding a motorcycle around a hairpin turn or <laughs> jumping out of a sky, you know, out of a plane skydiving, or you know, to go back further to our, our prehistoric selves. If you're chasing a rabbit and you run through a bramble patch, you need that pain reliever of the endorphins mm. to be able to keep going. It's a runner's high, basically. Yeah, yeah, endorphins are definitely part of the runner's high. Um, but it's not a great way to, to get lasting contentment because you can't uh -huh. be scraping a peg on your motorcycle <laughs> all the time. You know, uh -huh. you can't spend like 12 hours a day in that kind of happiness. Um, so we're sort of familiar with that. And I think for the most part, technology doesn't hit that button. Uh, it does show up in things like horror movies or horror VR. Mm -hmm. You're getting that endorphin hit because you your body is processing that there really is an alien that might kill you. Video so games you, to some extent. Yeah, video games for sure, for sure. Um, and that's that's how they give you that high. Uh, and then the other one that I think your cell phone typically is exploiting the most that is addictive is the dopamine, the mm -hmm. dopamine push. And that you get when you hear the notification bell that says you got a text message. You're like, ooh, somebody has something to say to me. You get that little like, mm. um, which you can feel if you're like, if you're dozing off, about to go to sleep, and you hear that bell and suddenly you're wide awake, that's the dopamine arousing your sympathetic nervous system to wake you up and, and put you into this more awake, aroused state. And that's great because sometimes we need to be awake and aroused. There's nothing wrong with dopamine. But if we have dopamine happiness and endorphin happiness, um, again, they don't lead to lasting contentment because what happens if that bell on your phone rings all day, it stops making you feel good. You get over aroused and unhappy and waked out. Um, so then what's left, right? So if we look at the BF Skinner, uh, experiments, the sort of famous lever that the rats hit to release the morphine, which releases dopamine. Um, that's, that's to me where we're, I am trying not to go with technology mm -hmm. that I'm building. Um, 
but it, the story usually stops there. We usually hear about the rat experiments and the leather and the Skinner box. And yeah, 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 this is the cautionary tale of what not to do. But actually, there was a series of follow-up experiments by a different researcher, whose name I can't remember at the moment. We maybe can put it in the show notes. Um, no worries. Where, <laughs> where they built the rat park. They took a look at the Skinner boxes in the cages, and they said, this is really weird. Rats don't live in little metal cages individually with a little, you know, a lever and a water bottle filled with morphine. Um, rats are social creatures, much like mm-hmm. ourselves. And so they wanted to know what would happen if rats were given the choice between hanging out with their buddies or running on the wheel or exploring the empty tin can, you know, like they gave them a sensory rich environment with their homies. And then they gave them the same bottle of sugar water and morphine. And the rats who were not kept in isolation, who lived in the rat park, used up to 18 times less morphine. So what that says is what's, what's happening in this greater ecosystem? Do people just have a life of isolation? You know, is our, is our greater environment, not just what's on the screen itself, but what's happening in the whole bigger ecosystem of our culture and our communities. Um, because we're all social animals. And when given the opportunity to wean themselves off in one group of the rats, they took them and intentionally got them addicted. And then they returned them back to the rat park and they looked at how how many of those rats would endure the pain of withdrawal from the morphine. Because when you're on morphine and you're getting that dopamine, it takes you out of being social. It makes you completely in your own world and isolated. But the rats chose to endure the withdrawal so that they go to go back to hanging out mm-hmm. with their buddies and snuggling. So <laughs> Which is, which is oxytocin. Oxytocin. Because <laughs> thank you. Oxytocin yeah. is the, the lasting contentment. It's the hormone that's released when we're with people that we feel are in our in group, they're in our tribe, we're safe with them. Oxytocin is naturally released. Greetings, hacker. Ever wonder how to submit stories to Hacker Noon or check the status of your submissions? Well, wonder no more. Go to contribute.hackernoon.com. Whether you're a new writer, longtime contributor, or looking for the right place to spotlight your brand, get started with contribute.hackernoon.com. With your help, we are building Hacker Noon 2.0 to be the best place for tech professionals to publish, and it starts with a new submission flow. Head over to contribute.hackernoon.com today to claim your spot. You are Hacker Noon. So bringing this back to the context of like, you know, our technology and the technology we have today, you know, we've got, we've got cell phones, we've got all these apps, we've got Facebook, we've got Twitter, we've got all these social media networks, and they're just like, they're just hitting that dopamine button. Mm -hmm. Every time you get a notification, every time you get a like, every time you get a retweet, every time you do anything on any of these apps, they're, they're literally designed like slot machines. Like they've taken... The same ideas and the same concepts that, you know, Vegas has been using for decades, applied that to, you know, our productivity apps, our networking apps, our chat applications. They've, you know, they've applied those same methodologies to these applications so that we would get addicted to these apps because it's all about time consumed and eyeballs and 
you know, that's, that's how they monetize. It's about collecting data. It's about being able to run advertising. You know, a lot of people forget, like, how does Google pay their bills? It's, it's advertising. How does Facebook pay their bills? Well, it's advertising and selling your data, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, you know, there's this, and the way that they do this is by keeping your attention. And the way that they've done that primarily has been hitting that dopamine button. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's funny because this pattern has become so pervasive that I've even seen wellness apps mm -hmm. use these patterns and the wellness apps are not using a, an advertising model. They don't have like their subscription base or they are, you know, your employer or your insurance company is providing this to you and they paid a flat rate for this white label Kaiser Permanente. I don't like, I don't think Kaiser Permanente has one, but they just happen yeah. to be my health insurer. And uh, let's pretend that KP gave me a KP app that's helping me break bad habits and get more sleep. They'll, they, I'm deliberately not saying the name of the one that I'm picking on, but, um, <laughs> but they're using the same patterns because that's what everybody has learned to do. That's what product managers have learned to do. That's what UX and UI designers have learned to do. That Like it's so pervasively um, infected our ethos of how we think it's, it's good to build something. And, no, but I will say that, yeah, everything. There is a class of apps that absolutely doesn't do this that are super popular and you have on your phone. Like nobody, nobody's like, Oh God, I, I, I can't stop looking at the little cars on Lyft. You, you <laughs> use it, you get the value from the service, you pay for it, you're done. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important to divide because we have a, even me, I think speaking these generalities about, about this and. There's definitely a class of apps that falls into this addictive pattern. And there's another class of apps like banking, transit, Delta, you know, most of my, my travel and banking stuff have great patterns because I already mm -hmm. have an intrinsic need to use those things. And they don't give a shit. They just need me to check in with my boarding pass. I've seen it in banking apps, actually. Have you? Yeah, a little like... That like the UI UX, they'll do little things when you send money to someone, um, mm -hmm. or when you receive money, it'll like give you a little notification. I, I have seen, I have seen the banking system starting to tap into mm -hmm. this, They're realizing the value. I think it's, it's like I just turn off all the note. I don't have any badges pop down from the mm -hmm. top, like no peeking, no window shade, nothing is on my lock screen except for the calendar. Nothing makes noise except for the calendar. And phone calls, actually, yep. I have all other sounds off for everything unless I have a specific need. Like, I know this person is going to text at this time, and so I'll turn on text message notifications temporarily. But um, I've gone super, super hardcore about no notifications anywhere. And it turns out it's fine. I have badges on for messaging, and I get all my messages. Like, nobody's ever wigged out because it took me, you know, an extra half an hour to see the message. I, I actually do the same thing. Uh, I disable all my notifications. I, I just keep my phone on the vibrate mode. I like almost never take it off that. Um, cause sound is one of the most, for me at least sound is like one of the most kind of annoying. Um, and it really does. If I hear that bell or I hear a notification sound, it's just, I'm immediately snapped out of whatever I'm doing. Uh, and I don't want that to happen. So, for example, every time I do a podcast episode, like 
I have to go quit anywhere between five and 10 applications that make noise, have notifications. I have to put my phone on airplane mode. I don't even do the do not disturb anymore. I'm just like, let's just cut the signal completely um, so that it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't interrupt the podcast. So, you know, doing podcasts has actually been really interesting for me because it's forces you to kind of cut that, uh, you know, cut that uh, connection to the world for an hour when we're recording or whatever. Um, And, it feels good. It feels nice to have a conversation with someone and be able to focus on that conversation and be able to listen and take the time and energy to do that with knowing that I'm not going to have, you know, 15 different things trying to get my attention. Yeah. Because this practice of giving your attention fully to someone else is so healthy. Like Mm -hmm. that is what releases the oxytocin is connecting and deeply and Every time you have something that's pulling you out and pulling you out and pulling you out, even if it could pull you out, even if you just have a, you know, one thread of your eight core processor watching something else, (laughs) then it's a different quality of attention. And Mm -hmm. I feel like you really miss because it's already hard enough to listen to somebody. It's so easy for me to be in the mode of level one listening, which is just, I'm hearing you, but I'm actually listening to my own thoughts and cueing the thing that I'm about to say back to you. And if I'm stuck in that cueing the thing to say to you, I'm actually not hearing you anymore. But I am a podcast guest, so I need to respond with something. So (laughs) being able to actually be with what you're saying and be with my own thoughts um, is level two listening. It's hard. Like I need all the capacity I can get to be able to do that. Um, and then if you really, really are uh, up on a master level, then you can do level three listening, which is not applicable because we're not in a bigger room, but level three listening would be being with what you're saying, being with what my own thoughts are having, but not letting them overwhelm and being able to hear what else is going on in the room, which might not even be speech. It might just be attending to who's looking at who and what the Mm -hmm. energy of the room is doing. Like, is our conversation alienating other people? Is it engaging some people and not others? And being able to like check in and hold all of that is a level of awareness that really demands all of my capacity. And if I've got crap going on, that's even outside the room that the whole global internet trying to get my attention. I, I, I'm not that kind of bodhisattva. <laughs> I'm not that good. So I have to conserve my awareness. Well, and you brought up a, a good point is, you know, body language is really important visual cues from other people. Uh, and I feel like we've lost a lot of that ability to understand and interpret uh, and even communicate effective body language for particular situations. You know, for example, someone might be in a meeting and might be doing something that, you know, sends the clue, you know, a clue to the rest of the room that, you know, they're anxious or they're nervous when maybe they're not, um, or, you know, they're showing closed body language when really they are listening and trying to be open to what's happening, but they've been trained or they have a habit of just doing a certain thing that makes it seem like they're more closed off. So there's, body language is like a really critical component to a lot of communication. That's why I like to do zoom and video and, you know, the people who are listening to the audio, like, yeah, you're, you're missing out a little bit cause you, you don't get to see the body language. I mean, that's why I love doing this with video as well, 
um, so that you get to see the guests, uh, you know, get to see the interaction that's kind of happening. It's a little more human in my, my opinion, um, because body language is so important. Yeah. And even if someone is listening to this and they're just getting the audio, the conversation between you and I is different because we can attune to each other. Mm-hmm. So the ultimate product, even if somebody's not seeing the video, is better because you and I can communicate better. And the audio ends up being different because we can see each other right now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And you're you're coming at this from a product manager perspective. You've worked in UI UX. You've worked for Mozilla. You ran your own company as well. Can you talk a bit about your background and kind of where you're coming from with this perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll start with with my experience with Mozilla. Um, I was doing UX design there and um, really had an amazing opportunity to travel the world promoting open source values and work on some amazing projects and do some activist projects. Like, um, I don't know if you remember when SOPA and PIPA were a thing and they were about mm-hmm. to destroy the internet and like, it happened really quickly and we were all on IRC back in the day before Slack. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just a channel appeared and we really quickly um, hacked together uh, a protest and and I was able to connect our donation page with the EFF people. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's the kind of, just working at Mozilla, I felt like having my my email address at mozilla.com just gave me this golden key to eat. Like I can just up an email EFF and they'll write me right back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was extraordinary. Um, and I work with some amazing cryptographers designing a federated authentication system. Uh, people might know as persona, which sadly did not get continued, but um, you know, the just got to be in, be in the depths of the reality of trying to make things at such a big scale and influence um, internet protocols on something as critical and core as identity was an amazing challenge. And then you've been a CEO as well. Yeah, I um, I left Mozilla and decided that the most interesting thing that I could do next would be, um, it was very much shaped out of three months that I spent in Cambodia. Um, taking a leave of absence from Mozilla. And um, I got really interested in the apparel industry because Cambodia, being one of the lowest GDP countries on earth, is one of the countries of last refuge for apparel manufacturers to relocate from. So at first, manufacturing went to China, and then China started to have a middle class and wages rose. And so they moved them out of China into places like Cambodia um, where they can pay people, you know, like two or $3 a day. And um, so I just got really interested in the realities of apparel manufacturing and was inspired to start a sustainable apparel brand based on sizing and using machine learning to craft a much more effective sizing system that used um, laser cutters and every Every pair of jeans that we made was custom fit to um, to the client. Not technically custom fit, modular customization. If anybody's <laughs> really paying attention, there's a huge difference between those. 
Um, but yeah, using using AI to generate sizes. Awesome. And so now, and now you're working on your podcast and you're working on your new lab. So what's, what's kind of next for you? You're, you're looking, you just relocated to San Francisco. You were in Oakland before. Now you're looking at uh, New Zealand, I think you mentioned. Yes. Um, <laughs> there's an extraordinary fellowship called the Edmund Hillary Fellowship that my partner just got inducted into that I uh, accompanied him. And um, it's an amazing opportunity for technologists and uh, and investors to be able to come to New Zealand. It's the world's first global impact visa that's designed for not just improving the economy and the environment of New Zealand, but really using New Zealand as a base for mm-hmm. worldwide change, which is amazing. I'm just super impressed by their government and their efficiency, and they have functional institutions. <laughs> <laughs> Every country has the problems, but um, but I'm pretty blown away by the culture and the the real feeling of citizenship and like you show up and you're a member of their society in a way that I haven't experienced in the U.S. Yeah, well, I I think part of the issue with the U.S. is you know we've because of all the things that we are talking about you know conditioning with these social media apps um, you know hitting that dopamine button, everyone constantly being distracted by their phones. Uh, you know, it's, it's eliminated a sense of community and because of that also a sense of responsibility. Um, right. so unfortunately, I mean, so I grew up in the Bay area and like, and I was just on another podcast talking about this recently, like you can't even talk to the person sitting next to you on the bus anymore. Um, and when I was a kid growing up in San Francisco in the Bay area, like, when you were in a situation like you were standing in line at the bank or the grocery store or whatever, like you would just talk to the person next to you to, you know, kill the five minutes you're in line or whatever. Um, that's how you got through those moments. That's how we, that's how we used to behave as species. Like, it's like, Hey, I'm going to be here for 10 minutes. I may as well talk to the person next to me because they're bored too. Um, you know, neither of us has anything to do for the next 10 minutes. So, uh, you know, whether you're on a bus standing in line, whatever, uh, that's how we used to interact is we used to talk to our, you know, we used to talk to our neighbors. We used to talk to the people sitting next to us. Uh, you used to talk to your classmates. Now we're all stuck in echo chambers. Now we're all stuck mm-hmm. in bubbles. Now everybody keeps their own little mini social network. They keep it in their pocket in their phone. And then that's it. Um, they don't create that space or that time for others. And I, I feel like that's a major factor in why we've kind of lost that sense of, like community and civility in the U.S. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I think there's, I think there's a continuum that starts on one end with numbness mm-hmm. and, and the pair to numbness is addiction. The way that you can stay numb to your emotions is by addicting yourself to something. They're coping mechanisms and coping mechanisms are great. They are absolutely needed. Um, but that's just, that's where a lot of us are. That's early where I have been and I'm not as much in that space as I used to be. Um, but we can maintain this ability to not feel negative feelings if we are playing a game, if we are on Facebook, if we are even sort of like check out, you check your brain out into Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Um, we all know what those are 
and we check them out into alcohol and we check our brain out into to cannabis. And they, again, I, there's no judgment. I have no judgment or shame whatsoever about these things. Um, but that's just where we are as a society. We are all addicted to a whole bunch of stuff, to eating, to yeah. <laughs> hiding and sleeping 11 hours. You know, there's a laundry list as long as my arm. And we all have our favorite ones. But um, so we, if you start the continuum in addiction and numbness, so the next thing that happens as you, as you rise up out of that is the first emotion you might start to feel if you start to feel again is not a pleasant one. It's probably shame. That's the first thing. And so that's what keeps us going back into our addiction is like emotions. No, shame. I don't want to feel that. Let me check my brain back into Facebook. Um, but shame is, shame is only a step along the continuum to really waking up and participating and taking action in society. So it's addiction. Then you rise up into shame. Then you rise up into guilt. Then you rise up finally into taking action. But that's a painful journey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the difference between shame and guilt is shame says, I am bad. This is according to Brene Brown, who's like my freaking hero. Um, guilt says, I did something bad. There's a huge difference between those things. Shame is the fear of disconnection from our society. It's like, oh, I am a horrible person, not worthy of love, or, you know, I am a lazy piece of shit that's not enough. Like, like we all have some version of these horrible demon voices in our head that tell us that we're bad, that we're not enough, you know, not, not fast enough, not productive enough, not rich enough, not handsome enough, not pretty enough, not thin enough, not whatever enough. That's, mm -hmm. that's the voices of shame. Um, but if you can get past that to guilt, guilt is actually helpful. So instead, instead of saying, I am a bad friend for not calling John on his birthday, you can say, I didn't call John and that was kind of shitty. Like the, it's not a subtle difference. It might seem subtle, but. I'm a piece of shit because I forgot my friend's birthday is really different than, wow, it was really shitty that I forgot his birthday and didn't send him a message. Mm -hmm. um, so you can like graduate to those higher and higher perspectives. So then finally, if you can come from the place of being so addicted that you didn't notice it was your friend's birthday, to then realizing that you forgot and thinking you're a piece of shit and still being paralyzed because you think you're a piece of shit and you're not worthy of having a friend to shit. I forgot his birthday. Then you can move finally to the fourth, which is to take action, which is to say, Hey, I totally forgot your birthday. I am so sorry. So mm -hmm. um, that's the, that's how I sort of look at the continuum between numbness and addiction to um, making it through to a place where you can actually take a useful action to reconnect and, you know, be, be the person that you're trying to be in the world. <laughs> Are there any other things that people can do to kind of break the addiction and, you know, be more present and aware? Yeah, I would say the most critical thing is, is, is that like there's a loop between addiction and shame that keeps you stuck in it. Mm -hmm. And it is, um, it's so funny because shame is all about the fear of disconnection, but shame itself is what keeps you disconnected. 
thinking I'm a shitty friend, I'm a terrible person is what keeps you from actually being able to reach out and say, Hey, that was, that was crap. I'm so sorry. Um, that's where we get cut off. And if we go back into addiction, if we say, Oh, I'm a piece of shit, I better smoke some pot and, and numb those emotions. Cause I just can't sit with feeling uncomfortable long enough to do something about this. Um, is this, this weird shame spiral because then we, we like double down on the shame and go, God, I forgot my friend's birthday. I smoked pot. Now it's three days later. And it, you tend to just like stay in that loop and like, oh my God, now it's four days later. And now it's five days later. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Um, but if you can look at your coping mechanism as actually a good thing to have, like, thank God I smoked some pot. I was super overwhelmed. It couldn't handle that moment because I smoked some pot. I got a good night's sleep. Now I feel a little better. Now I can do something better. So like if you, if you keep yourself in the shame cycle with whatever your coping mechanisms are, um, like just relabeling them from addictions to coping mechanisms and being grateful that you have them, no matter what they are, they're helping you stay on the planet and you're making a totally rational choice to use those. Then you can be like, ah, because I did that, I feel a little bit better. Now I can take a walk. Great. Now I took a walk. Now I feel a little bit better. Now I can write the text message I wanted to send. Mm -hmm. Just ascending up because the coping mechanisms can be all the way from, you know, going and taking a walk is a coping mechanism. Binge eating is a coping mechanism. Heroin is a coping mechanism. <laughs> Cutting yourself so that you don't commit suicide is a coping mechanism. Like there's kind of a ladder of, um, of ones from more severe to less severe. And you're just trying to ascend up the ladder and, and exchanging coping me mechanisms for the next one up that. Um, I mean, one of the ones I've noticed a lot of people do in San Francisco is they keep themselves eternally busy. Um, yeah. or their calendars like planned where they know everything they're doing for the next like three months and like, can't allow anything else to like pop up. And I'm like the total opposite of that. I'm like, I don't want to have, I don't want to know what I'm doing tomorrow. I don't, um, yeah. I want tomorrow to be new and interesting and whatever presents itself presents itself. I mean, obviously if there's something scheduled, it's like, yes, I need to do that. That's a priority. I need to have that meeting or whatever. But like, I like not knowing what I'm doing tomorrow, but I, I know so many people who are afraid of that. Uh, and they like knowing that, you know, on Thursday, I'm doing this on, you know, Wednesday, I do this on Friday, I'm doing that. And just having that like pre planned structure that they're constantly have something that they need to go do. Um, it's, that's its own. I, I've noticed that absolutely. often its own form of addiction. Oh, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's probably pretty high on the ladder. That's better than like feeling like your life is out of control and, um, you know, like having some really severe, some, some yeah. super severe it's ones. Not it, it's, it's not disabling. It's it's not disabling. And it's a none of them, man. none of them are, I mean, in, in a way, I would say none of them are disabling. They are all abling. They are all taking mm -hmm. you from a less disabled state to a more abled state. It just may be that your baseline is in a different place. And for the most functional someone could be who's addicted to 
opioids is in that place. That's the most functional that they are able to be in this moment. And and we have this narrative that like, if you had more willpower, if you were a better person, you would just decide to give up this coping mechanism. But actually that's not what happens. Like you have to heal the underlying issue and then you can move forward and then you can like, you'll naturally have that coping mechanism fall away. Um, but if you just decide that you're going to give up, you know, one, you're going to pick up another one and you might pick up a worse one. So instead of this shame game that we play that gets us stuck in that place, look into what is hurting, you know, like what's the rock in your shoe that's causing you to want to not feel anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that's real deep work, but that's what it, that's what it means to grow up and be an adult. (laughs) be a functional member of society. And that's, that's fine. And and we've talked a lot about kind of the micro of how this works in this episode so far, but I really want to talk also about the kind of macro picture of, you know, how a lot of this technology and a lot of the decisions that have been made that have been put into these apps and these companies, you know, how that's impacted our economy, how that's impacted our society. Um, We were talking a little bit before we were recording uh, about you know potential impacts that you know technology and some of these things are going to have on our economy soon. Can you talk a little bit on that and what you think is potentially coming? Well, my favorite thing that gives me a spark of hope is um, is Holochain, um, which I'm curious how many people have heard of. Are you familiar at all? Yeah, I've actually interviewed them. Uh, They were one of the first episodes I did on my previous podcast. So uh, I've been following them for a few years now. Um, Fascinating project. Very fascinating project. Um, Do you want to explain it or should I? Yeah, I would love to. Um, (laughs) So uh, what has me excited about Holochain is that um, it is capable of operating at a scale that you could run any app on and um most blockchain technologies are that are running on consensus never going to have enough they're just not big enough they're not fast Mm -hmm. enough um it would completely fall over if you were trying to run twitter at its current scale but on holochain you can be running uh, if there were a holochain version of twitter then it can be peer-to-peer hosted and that changes everything. (laughs) Um, If I was running the Holochain Twitter app on my phone, every 13 minutes, I would need one of the cores to do two seconds worth of processing to give a hundred X redundancy. And everything gets way more interesting at that point. Like the economics of creating an app right now mean that, if I wrote the next runaway success app, I would have to go to VC and get dollars to scale the app. And with apps that are written on Holochain, every person that you add, every user that you add, every installed app adds redundancy to the system, adds strength and robustness to the system. And it's a regenerative um, way of thinking about tech platforms that's modeled on the earth and the way Mm -hmm. that, when we add more members to the system, it should get more resilient instead of more brittle. And we've got a whole architecture of the internet as we know it that 
is not built for robustness. It isn't inspired by the way that the earth works, the way the ecosystems work. It's not built for resiliency. And I think that that's, that has some very real consequences about who gets to have a voice, who gets to write the next big runaway app. And if mm-hmm. they do and they succeed, do they benefit from that or do they now have a problem because they can't afford to scale it? So I think that's huge. And that's a real problem for a lot of entrepreneurs, especially with software businesses. So just for some context, I ran my own startup. Uh, it was WordPress themes and plugins and the open source versions had like 4.9 million downloads. It was crazy. Um, that's a lot of downloads. You know, I eventually had to sell the company because I, I didn't find an investor that was willing to take it to the next level. And I couldn't sustain what I was doing uh, because it had grown too fast, too quickly. Um, yep. So that's a very real problem with all of these apps and Holochain and the core concepts behind it absolutely do solve it. Yeah, I think it's it's very interesting as well from a standpoint of what happens in the event of natural disasters or man-made mm-hmm. disasters where you have partitioning. So if I move to New Zealand and the undersea cables get clipped for one reason or another and I'm running Holochain Twitter, um, it will still continue to function in a meaningful way. Yeah. I won't open up Holochain Twitter and it will say, sorry, these tweets are taking too long to load. It very naturally partitions, and I would see the tweets from the people that are in my network partition, and I wouldn't see them. I wouldn't be able to DM anybody that was outside the partition, so that would obviously be noticeable, but I would still have functional communication. The the app would still meaningfully work. You could still talk to your neighbor. Exactly. You can still talk to your neighbor, and as soon as the partition was restored, the data would all just knit back together quite easily. The only thing that would be a problem is if there was rival data. So if I registered a new username, uh, anytime where the data has to be unique and somebody else outside the partition also uh, registered that same username and was validated, um, then you have to have, like what I love about the architecture is that they are not coding in any assumptions about the culture of mm-hmm. these communities. And this is super important. Like, I'm so impressed that they got this right. Uh, they're not saying we're going to make a, a choice in our architecture that if there's rival data, that it will be adjudicated in a particular way. They're allowing the providers to make that decision. So in one community, in all of chain Twitter, they would lock both users and send them both a reset code, and they would have to come to some mutual agreement. In another community, they might auction that right off. In another community, they might have a different way of, of deciding this. Uh, maybe there's a community of, of panel of people who decide who gets it. Um, but I think it's really, really smart that the architecture has made some choices where it's really important to make choices. And then they've allowed some of these cultural norms to be set by the communities because you just cannot abstract some of these questions. And why do we need something like Holochain? Uh, what what do you see that's kind of happening right now with the current, uh, you know, the current technology, the current system? Why do we need these solutions? Is there a problem today? I think there's an enormous problem with the way that technology gets created and funded uh, because it does get funded through such a narrow lens 
that is so poor at uh, bringing in diverse viewpoints and bringing in diverse business models. There's so much that just never sees the light of day, or if it does see the light of day, it's like yours, it's a runaway success, and then it gets morphed into something that the creators didn't want it to, or it gets sold, mm-hmm. or it gets shut down. So the things that are at a scale that we recognize, not exclusively, but to a large extent, have been funded by VC, and VC just has a very particular role that it needs to play in the economy and that's not necessarily well aligned with what the society needs it's only like it does a thing and it does a useful thing but unfortunately there's a whole lot that society needs that vc is never going to be appropriate funding mechanism for and i gotta ask since this is the hack noon podcast what is some time in your life that you've had to hack something i think i want to pick on the um I mean, I I will say I started a company and everything was hacked. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and I love using Airtable and Zapier to hack together really quick internal tools. Um, if I had it all to do over again, um, there, I would not build nearly the custom stuff that we did. I mean, we could have used that developer time for so much more if we had built on top of the automation that's now possible with Airtable and Zapier. Um, I just think it's a brilliant way of prototyping small businesses and, um, that's my favorite hack. Awesome. And do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? I would, I would just highly encourage anybody who is intrigued by Holochain to look into it. Uh, it goes way deeper, um, at its core, it's a reimagining of the internet as a resilient system inspired by nature. Um, and it's it's moving away from data as primary to the person who said it and the trust relationship as primary. And there's some massive changes in your whole concept of how you build technology that have to come out of that. Um, but the internet could be so different than it is today. and and it can happen completely underneath the users. Like they don't need to know they're using Hologen Twitter in the yeah. same way if you change from Azure to a different cloud provider, your users never have to know that anything can switch. So I think that's what excites me is that all of these underlying protocols can change and so much good will come out of it. And it can be completely transparent to the users. They don't have to understand anything about I think hopefully it can break that cycle that we were talking about earlier in the episode is by changing that underlying architecture, fixing the foundation so that you can build these applications to be more functional and useful in a different way. Then you don't have to rely on that dopamine switch. You don't have to rely on these gimmicks and these tricks to get people to use your apps and the incentive to use those apps and what those apps do and how they function is completely changed because the economic models changed behind it because now you're trying to build a more resilient system rather than steal people's data and sell it for money. Absolutely. Absolutely. Go find a hackathon near you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Where, so where can people find you? So uh, everything related to me is at chrisbeasley.com. And if you're specifically interested in the lab, uh, that's at hackreality.co. And, all the podcasts and my essays and a whole bunch of goodness is on there. 
Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. This concludes another episode of the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube and follow us on social media. You can also find us at hackernoon.com and podcast.hackernoon.com for more episodes. Thank you for listening.